we're starting uh, the book of James this morning. Uh, for, for a couple of months, we've wanted to uh, go through a shorter book in the New Testament. And uh, the letter of James is a perfect, it's just an ideal book to go through. Five chapters. You could go home this afternoon and read it uh, in 20 minutes or less. Uh, but we're going to go... We're going to try to cover really a chapter at a time each week. Uh, we may stop and pause. There's nothing telling us we can't uh, just by the Spirit's discretion and spend a little bit more than one week in a chapter. But I want to give, begin by giving you uh, some background about who James is. And in the New Testament, there are three James. James was a common name. James, there were three Jameses that are mentioned in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John. There's James the son of Alphaeus, uh, both are apostles. And then there's James the Just, and he is the half-brother of Jesus, the younger brother, obviously, of Jesus Christ. And he was not, James was not, we, we, we don't really know, we, we believe Mary was, we don't know about Joseph much after Jesus turned 12 years old, and uh, we see them finding Jesus in the, the tabernacle, in the temple. But we don't know a lot about James leading up to this point. We, we read James' words uh, leading up to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 through 21. You can read uh, that he worked alongside Paul, the apostle, and uh, he was very much involved in the Jerusalem church. In fact, James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, is the James that we'll refer to from this point forward. James was the presiding elder, the pastor in uh, the Jerusalem church. And so he was so influential in early Christendom. But this is the crazy thing that James grew up not believing in Jesus as Savior. And, and we read about that, not just in scriptural passages, that he's not uh, playing a part in uh, the roles that we see in the Bible, but also from early historians like Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who covered that first century there in Palestine. Uh, it wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus that James believed. And one of the reasons that we see this evidence is that in that upper room, where those 120 or so were gathered to pray on the day of Pentecost, James was present. He experienced the miraculous infilling of the Holy Spirit. From that moment forward, he lived uh, on fire. He lived with urgency for the gospel. He was highly influential in the spread of the gospel. And guys, it's just evidence that when Jesus comes into our lives, we're never the same again. And he was on fire to share uh, the, the, the gospel message and the good news of Jesus. Now, we do know from early history that James died in either A.D. 62 or 66. And so you think he, about 30 years after his brother Jesus had died. Uh, therefore, this letter we know obviously was written before his death. It wasn't written posthumously. James is the author. He identifies himself in the first verse. But we also know from those events in Acts chapter 15, 16, 17, and around there that a likely date for writing this book is sometime between A.D. 48 and 52. Some have even put it as early as 46 A.D. And what that means for us is that this was one of, if not the earliest written down recorded books in the New Testament. We always think, uh, you know, that these things are written chronologically, and that's not so. Matthew wasn't written first, and then Mark, and then it, it doesn't work that way. James is the one that was written down first, as far as history goes. Now, history goes back and covers a lot more than what we read, but um, we know that James was writing to 
Jewish Christians in Palestine. And uh, this is occurring probably shortly around or after, maybe a little before the Jerusalem Council. And if you know anything about your, your Bible history, you know that the Jerusalem Council met because there was this problem that arose with Judaizers. And what was happening is uh, people were saying, Christians were saying, it's Jesus alone. If you just have faith in Jesus, you'll be saved. And Judaizers were saying, no, 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 Jesus isn't enough. You also have to be circumcised. You also have to follow the law. You also have to do these things. And so they were making it Jesus plus something. And, and Paul makes it explicit in the gospel, and, and I think Jesus does too, that it's faith alone in Christ alone that saves our souls. And so what this meeting was, the council met, the church met, and they, they were trying to clarify this idea that it was salvation by faith in Jesus alone that saves a person's soul and nothing else. And so we don't believe that it's salvation plus baptism that saves a person's soul. Baptism is explicitly important in the New Testament as an act of obedience, as an outward witness, and and for so many other reasons to display our, our faith. But it is faith alone that saves a soul. And evidence of that was the thief on the cross that gave his life to Jesus as well. But we know he's writing to Jewish Christians, and it was hard for these people. If you can imagine, these Jewish Christians had grown up in the temple. They were used to Judaism. They were used to religion and ritual and and sacrifice and, and lots of other things that were going on. And now they're having to really convert their minds. Their minds are being reformed, as Romans 12 says. They're being conformed to the image of God. And it's hard for some to say that Jesus alone is enough. People today still do that. They say it's Jesus plus good works that get you to heaven. Or it's Jesus plus baptism. Or maybe it's just being good enough. But we know it's faith in Christ alone that saves us. And so James is writing to clarify what we're supposed to do as believers. Uh, we, we know that he was in Palestine, that he pastored this church, so he lived there in Jerusalem. But on verses like James 1.1, which we're going to look at in a second, we'll read the text, um, he, he's talking about the 12 tribes that were dispersed abroad. He, at this time, guys, th- there were Christians that were already being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. And so they're having to move outside of their home, move outside of their city, and they're already beginning to disperse around. We know that later on in Christendom, when Nero was the emperor, in Rome, there was a great fire in Rome, and the Roman rulers were looking for a scapegoat on whom to blame the fire on. The the Christians were despised and hated by the people there already, and so Nero said it was the Christians that began the fire. The Christians were rebellious. The Christians started a revolt, and they began persecuting Christians like had never been before seen. They would, it was said in early history that there were stakes uh, leading into the city of Jerusalem, and the heads of martyred Christians were were on top of those stakes that they would even light them with oil so that they burned as lamps as a reminder that Christians were no longer welcome there. And so what did the Christians do? The same thing that you and I would if that happened to us today. They fled. They went to all parts of the world. It's called the diaspora. If you think about uh, a pine cone or a flower or whatever it is that these pods, a dandelion, you, you see these little things floating away. And the spores, the seeds are getting spread everywhere so that that seed can continue to grow. And God used the dispersion. He used the tragedy. He used the test. He used the trial to take the gospel all over the world so that we even have it right here in Lowell, Arkansas today. And so God was taking what was meant for evil and he used it for good, as is his habit. We also know that James pastored and lived in Jerusalem 
because he makes mention in James 2.2 of a synagogue there, and we know that there was one there. James, this epistle, this letter, is the in-your-face, no-holds-barred letter written to Christians. In essence, James is saying, if you're going to be a Christian, be a real one. Don't pretend, don't be fake, don't go haphazardly, go out fully loaded. Be real in in the sight of God. And so this book, above all other books, as Brother Ben said, is a guide to practical Christian living. It's so encouraging to our faith to read the book of James because it gets down to the nitty-gritty and tells us what to do and what not to do. And when you read the book of James, it ought to step on your toes. There should be some conviction there. This book is about living your faith out loud in everyday situations, but doing so with victory and with joy in your hearts. James begins the letter by talking about the trials that affect every area of our lives. He exhorts us. He tells us. He says, I'm telling you guys, stop whining about your problems. Because here's what it looks like. When you go whining about all your problems to everybody else in the world, when you're, when you're complaining and grumbling and griping and everything's going on, you know what the world looks at? They think, man, God must not be very much. He must not be able to take care of those people. They're always griping and grumbling and complaining about something. They're always uh, on the war path, just jawing and jowling and making all kinds of noise and a fuss. And it gives a testimony to the world that our God isn't able to take care of our problems when we're constantly griping and complaining about something. It doesn't look good on us, and it doesn't look good for our Savior. And James is saying that. He says there's a crown that's waiting for those who keep going and who do not give up. He's saying your faithfulness matters, that you're to finish well, even if you started slowly. He says that we become victors or victims. Now, consider this. You can be victorious or you can live in victimhood depending on how you respond to your trials. If you respond to trials with faith, there will be victory in your life. If you respond to trials with doubt, with never seeking the Lord, with complaining about everything, you will not have victory. You will become a victim of the circumstance that you live in. And James teaches us to stop discriminating because it's not Christ-like. Quit making evil people famous by the way you accept their behavior, by the way you imitate their behavior, and by the way you honor their behavior. God's kingdom priority was never self-important people. When you see people that constantly flaunt themselves and lift themselves up and make themselves look perfect and that they know it all or they know what's best for even you in your life, be careful. Be wary of those people, James is saying. It's the ones who are neediness or who are aware of their neediness and their poverty and their lostness that Jesus came for. So it's never right for us to play favorites based on what people can do for us. We're to honor people uh, all across the board, rich, poor, big, small, believers, unbelievers, in a God-exalting way, whether or not they can repay you, whether they can enrich you, whether they can advance you or your career or promote what you're selling. It doesn't matter who they are. We're all created in the image of God. And James is trying to remind us of that very thing. James warns believers. We'll, we'll get into this in chapter 3, but to guard our tongues. That's difficult for us. To, to, not just our tongues today, but to guard your fingers as you sit behind a keyboard and type something on social media. Be mindful of how you speak. Quit living by earthly wisdom because, guys, we know that the way that seems right to man is the way that leads to death. It's not God's way. God's way leads to life. We're to walk according to his way. James also tells us that God's people need to quit the fussing and fighting with one another, to love one another as we submit to God. James is teaching that if we'll get right with God, we will have his power at our disposal. You want the power of God in your life? You want the answer to prayer? You want the blessing? It all starts with submission and humility underneath the authority of the Lord. He says that if we refuse to use our faith, it will become dead faith. An unused faith 
is a useless faith. Dead faith can never honor God or build his kingdom. And when God tests his children, guys, we'll see this in just the first verse here in just a moment, but I'm, I'm kind of giving you an intro and an overview of this book. When God tests his children, listen, he doesn't tempt anyone. Let no man say that he is tempted by God, for God tempts no man. But God does test us. He tries our faith to see what character and substance we're made of. When God tests his children, he does a great thing. David, in the Psalms, Psalm 26, Psalm 51, Psalm 139, asks the Lord to examine his heart and mind to see if he is true to the Lord. Abraham, Abram, when he was tested by God, when he offered his son Isaac up on that altar, he obeyed the Lord. Read Hebrews 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. He showed the world why he was called the father of faith because... He used his faith to follow through on what God had called him to do, and God stayed his hand. In both the Old and New Testaments, the word translated, uh, test, means to prove by trial. So anytime you're taking a test, you're going through a trial. You're trying to be proven through that test. When God sends tests to his children, his purpose is to prove that our faith is real. Now get this. It's not that God needs to know whether our faith is real or not. <laughs> he already knows all things. But God is proving to you and to me that our faith is real, that we're really his children, and that no trial will overcome our faith. Can you imagine the purpose of the test may just be to make you so bold in the Lord that your faith will always win the victory, that you'll always be strengthened and made sure of the substance of faith that he has put in you? In the parable of the sower, Jesus himself identifies the ones who fall away. He says that there are those who receive the seed of God's word with joy, but as soon as a time of testing comes, they fall away. James says that the testing of our faith develops perseverance, which leads to maturity in our walk with God. And so one of the greatest reasons that we have uh, testing in our lives is to make us mature more like Jesus. He goes on to say that testing is a blessing in James 1, 3, and 4, and then even in James 1, 12. When the testing is over and we have stood the test, he says, we will receive the crown of life, which God has prepared for those who love him. Testing comes from our Heavenly Father, who works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called to be his children, Romans 8, 28 and 29. Now, I'd ask you with, to turn with me, if you're not already in the book of James, to turn there now. We're going to look at a few verses here and try to break those down kind of a, in an expository manner to expose the Word of God, to shine light on what it means, not to make our own interpretation of what it means, but to see what the author's intent was, what God's intent was. And so look at James 1.1. We'll just begin there with the greeting, the introduction. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, what's happening here is James is immediately identifying himself as a disciple of Jesus. But he did not flaunt that. He didn't go around to tell people, don't you know that I'm a deacon of the church? Do you not know who I am? I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church Lowell. He's not going around saying, look who I am. He's saying, I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave to the Lord God and his son Jesus. Because he looked at that as the greatest role that someone under Jesus could play. That we serve the Lord Almighty. He used this as in, in his introduction because he was telling people, basically, that I'm writing to you in submission to my master's agenda. It's not me that I need you to listen to, but listen to me as I'm listening to the Lord. I want you to listen to God. 
And so James is he's called the just because his character was known and proven to be a man of integrity and humility. He was just and fair in his dealings, and he was faithful to the Lord. Verse 2, look at it. It says, count it all joy. Consider it all joy. Think of it as a great and joyful thing, depending on your translation. My brothers, obviously he's writing to believers here when he says brothers in Christ. When you meet trials of various kinds... Now, James says we can consider it a joy when we meet all kinds of trials. And that's hard to think of, isn't it? Because none of us like trials and none of us like tests. We don't like the rain clouds. We love the sunshine. We don't like the darkness. We like the light. We don't like it when things are hard. We like it when things are easy. We dislike the valley. We like the mountaintop. We're just that type of person. But, guys, it's the valley that's preparing us for the mountaintop. It's the struggle that's making us strong. And the Lord's trying to remind us of that. And it's important here when we see this, he says, when you meet trials, whenever you meet trials, not if you meet trials, because we already know, we've all lived long enough to understand that even as Christians, we will experience difficulties in this life, whether those are physical, emotional, relational, or financial. Regardless of the form the trials take, God wants you to be joyful, because one of the primary means he, he uses to make you and I like Jesus is by sending trouble your way. You may think that's a, that's a bad thing to say, but God will use trouble in our lives to develop us. He will use heat and fire to refine us. He says it over and over in his word. A trial, get this, this is the definition. <clears throat> a trial is a divinely ordained difficulty that God causes or permits so that he may grow us and conform us into the image of his son. A trial is a divinely ordained difficulty that God causes or permits, he either causes it to happen or he allows it to happen, so that you and I may grow and be conformed into the image of Jesus. Because, guys, we need some sanding down. We need some of the potter's hands on us to mold and shape this clay a little bit more. We need the refiner's touch. We need the master gardener's hand to prune some things out of our lives. Christians in crisis, and guys, some of us are there, some of you are there right now, we're actually undergoing an extreme makeover. Hardships can transform us into something beautiful under the hand of Almighty God. That's cause for unspeakable joy, that even if you're enduring something right now, even if you're in a boat where you've been for a long time and struggle after struggle seems to hit you and keeps rocking the ship, God has his hand on you still. He hasn't removed it. He's doing something great. Stand firm. It's not because of the pain that we rejoice, but because of the purpose behind the pain. God has a plan, and we can trust his plan. In God's providence, sometimes we have bad days on purpose because he may need us to look closer to him, to seek him, to press into him. You know, I used to run cross country in high school. You wouldn't believe it looking at me now, but I used to be a skinny guy, and I used to run distance. And a 5K race was the typical distance that we would run at meets. We ran, uh, when I ran at Southside and Fort Smith, we ran races at Rogers and Springdale and Greenwood and everywhere else around. And it was interesting because even though it was a 3.1-mile race, in our practice each day, we would run four, five, or six miles. Why would you run more if in the real race, in the real test, you're going to run less to get you ready? 
right? Why do you undergo some of these difficult struggles and trials? Why is the temperature so hot when sometimes it seems like what's coming isn't going to be that difficult? Because God's going to make you abound in trial. He's going to make you rejoice in the middle of it. You've already gone through the hardest part. Now when the next phase comes, you're going to be so ready for it that you're going to run right through it. But here's the deal. <coughs> we ran behind a place called Horseshoe Bend. It was behind the high school. And, uh, and we would run, and, and one of the runs we ran was a four-mile run. Back on that bend, there was a, a, a set of woods back there, a section of woods, and you could effectively cheat and cut off a quarter to a third of a mile by running through those woods, and a lot of guys did it. And, and there was a guy who was a team captain, and his name was Aaron Carius. And Carius was a, a guy who really couldn't handle cheating right? And he would lag, he was so much faster than me and most every guy on the team, but he would intentionally lag behind on the runs around Horseshoe Bend. And one of the reasons was he'd holler at us, don't cheat, don't cut corners, you're only hurting yourself, you're hurting the team. And man, he said it every day. And it kind of got burned into your head. It still didn't stop some people from cheating and cutting corners, but he said it. And the reason why that's important is because when we got into that meet, when we got into that run, it didn't matter if I finished in second or third place. It mattered how the team finished. And the more people finished at the front of the line, the higher our cumulative score was, the better the team did. And so if you cheated in practice and cut corners and played it easy and played it safe, when you got into the race, you'd be winded. You'd finish far back at the pack, and you'd hurt the team, not just yourself. And so the practice, the preparation, the trial, the test mattered in those instances. And, guys, it matters in our lives as well, speaking spiritually. People can cut corners in practice, but they won't make muster in the real race. This is what we're living is the real race right now. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long thing. Sometimes you do have to stop and walk. Sometimes you fall down and crawl. But the God, our God, our great and almighty God, picks us up. Cutting corners will weaken us and keep us so unprepared and underdeveloped for future trials and tests that will come our way. God wants you to be spiritually mature. He's trying to make you complete. The goal is to be like Jesus. Jesus had to endure so much more than we even read about in the pages of Scripture, right up to the agony of the cross. He didn't short-circuit God's plans, and we can collectively today thank God for that. But we are to follow Jesus' example. It may be easier to take the shortcut. It may be more comfortable. It may be more convenient. But that's not where spiritual muscle is developed in our lives. That's not where power or wisdom or joy is really found and experienced. Guys, those who have been through the trial, been through the struggle, been in the fiery furnace, and seen God show up and be present in those instances have a testimony unlike those who have walked around it or skirted the issue or avoided it altogether. We have been there. We have walked through sickness. We've walked through the valley of death. And the Lord has held us close. And we are victorious. And we know whatever may come. My God's going to be there that next time to help us with it. His grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness, and we're weak people. We are jars of clay that are sometimes cracked, and yet that Lord puts in us a treasure of the gospel, the beauty and glory of his son Jesus. And it's not about us. It's not about how powerful or beautiful or eloquent or strong we are. It's not about how much of anything that you and I are. It's all about the glory of God. He can take something so mundane and make it miraculous. He can do 
wonderful things in our lives. And so remember this. The conflict that you're experiencing in this world is a means that God is using to draw your attention to something spiritually. It may be bills that you're looking at and you think, man, I can't pay that. It may be uh, income tax and you, you didn't get a return this year. Instead, you have to pay in. It may be children that are disobedient. It may be struggles that you have in your marriage. It may be difficulties that you have with your kid or your body's breaking down or you got a bad report with the doctor or whatever it may be. We are all going through those things. We're going through them together. But you know one of the most beautiful things about Christendom is that you and I can lift each other's arms up. We can pray each other through that. We don't have to go this alone. James is saying it's cause for unspeakable joy because when a brother slips, there is always a brother or sister there alongside of him, two or three, to help pick them up. We have great reason for rejoicing because we're not going it alone. We have Jesus by our side, the Holy Spirit filling us, and believers to walk with us. So we have this great idea here, guys, and it's to be remembered. God applies the iron of trial to the wrinkles of your life so that Jesus looks good wearing you. I got up this morning and my pants were wrinkled. They were hanging in the closet, which my wife gets on to me for putting wrinkled clothes back in my closet. But my pants were wrinkled. So I got up and I went in there to the ironing board and I, I filled the iron up with some water and I used spraying starch and I got my pants unwrinkled so that I'd look good wearing them so that y'all wouldn't think I was a bum. Well, guess what? God is right now through the difficulties and trials, through the wrinkles of your life, ironing those things out so that Jesus looks good wearing you, so that you bring the utmost glory and honor to his son, so that you are without spot or blemish when you are presented before the Lord. He is using the chisel to hammer out the imperfections and make us masterpieces of his glory. God isn't going to put a, a lump of junk out there to show people what he looks like. No, he's got to refine us a little bit more, and we need to yield to the master's hand. He'll use the fire and the heat of trials to refine us and make us pure and brilliant. That's God's way, and his ways are perfect. We're only to verse 5. How y'all doing? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives liberally or generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. What should you do when trouble begins? The first thing you do is you seek first the kingdom of God. You pray. You commune and communicate with the Lord God. You ask God for wisdom, which wisdom Asking God for wisdom is the ability to pl apply spiritual truth to your life's circumstances. Wisdom is the ability to apply the knowledge of God that you read about in the scriptures, the, 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 the spiritual truths to make application of the real thing. And so we know that uh, he's making us smarter, he's making us stronger, he's making us better, he's making us more like Jesus. God promises to give you wisdom to respond to your trials with the greatest spiritual benefit. As James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so guys, if any of us is lacking wisdom, the Lord says, come to me and ask. And I'll not just give you a little bit of it. He said, I'm going to pour it out all over you. I'm going to make your cup overflow. Yes, it's true. As Jesus states in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And some people say, well, then why bother? Why bother praying? Because here's the reason. God knows it, but you don't. God has the answer, but you don't. And even though he knows what you're going to ask before you ask him, even though he knows what you're going through before you even do, he wants us to draw close to him to cause his power to be made perfect in our weakness, his answer to be applied to our situation, his promise to be applied to our problems. 
In John 16, 23, Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's not carte blanche for any of us to ask for personal, greedy, selfish things, but for us to ask according to God's will for what would bring God glory, what would bring us and other people good, and what would advance his kingdom here on earth. God will always answer those prayers, asking according to his will. The wisdom that we spoke of here definitely falls within those bounds of God's will for your life. God doesn't want you to be stupid. God doesn't want you to be ignorant even. God doesn't want you to walk through life as a fool, falling down and stumbling all over the place. God wants you to be wise. He wants you to be discerning. He wants to give you the very mind of Jesus Christ so that you will see problems on the horizon. You know, if we saw a tornado blowing in over here, a fool would continue to stand here and preach. A wise person would say, guys, let's go. And we'd get into the building or go into a place for safety. And, and, and the same is true spiritually. When we see problems on the horizon, it's a call from God to prepare, to stand firm, to stand fast, to dig in with prayer. And so I want to read a proverb to you. This Proverbs is the book of wisdom. From Proverbs 2, you might write this one down because it would be a good one. I, we don't have screens anymore out here. But Proverbs 2, 6 through 12. For the Lord gives wisdom. First and foremost, it's God who gives it. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand, once you've asked for wisdom and it's been applied to your life because God's giving it, then you'll understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. You need the Lord's wisdom to discern these things. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. God's wisdom is available to everyone who will ask of him in faith. And that's where verses 6 through 8 come in. It says, but let him, the person who's asking for wisdom, ask in faith. It's one thing to ask, but it's another thing to ask in faith, believing that the Lord will give it. With no doubting, he says, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. You ever seen a wave? Man, you see a wave come in, and it comes in with force, and then it kind of just fizzles out and dies as it crashes into a rock or as it comes upon the beach. But God doesn't want that for you. He wants the power of his wisdom. The power of his joy to be so great that your faith is like a wave that doesn't just crash and fizzle. He wants us to be a tsunami. He wants us to overtake this world. He wants his all-consuming glory to fill the earth and to flood it so that we're desperate for more of his grace and mercy. And guys, we're not to be these waves that fizzle out and crash. That's the person who doubts. That's the person who says, God, I'm going to believe you if you do it. And then another problem comes and they're like, well... He didn't hear that. I'm just going to do my own thing. Man, that's foolishness. That's, that's doubt. That's where those things stem from. He says, for that person must not suppose, the doubting person, that he will receive anything from the Lord. For that is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Did you ever consider that the instability in your life comes from the amount of doubt you have in the Lord? Why is my life shaking? Why are the foundations crumbling? It's because I've doubted God. I haven't believed him by faith. I haven't walked in faith. I haven't asked him in faith. And I'm not living in wisdom. Maybe it's time for repentance to happen in our hearts. And it's to come back to the Lord and say, God, I am sorry for the things I've made it. I'm sorry for the sin in my life. Father, I haven't asked you very much recently. I haven't believed you or trusted you for it. But I'm asking now. 
And guys, he says that there will be a force behind your asking, that wisdom will be granted to you, and that you will be filled with faithful wisdom. How does God communicate this wisdom? Well, it's primarily through his word and also through his spirit. And next is through godly counsel. Listen, after you've prayed, go to the scripture to see what God's word says about the problem. There are answers there. Unfortunately, in our day and age, we have so many translations of the Bible. We have Bible apps at our fingertips. We have scriptures that we can share from anywhere. But so many of us haven't hidden the word of God in our own hearts. We don't pick up this word anymore and just read it for reading's sake. Because there's a movie on Netflix or a series on Prime or there's something to watch on television. There's the notes that go there, so we'll jump to the next verse, okay? Guys, we are in a day and age where we are easily entertained by things that don't matter. But the things of eternal importance are at our fingertips, and yet so often we're not searching and seeking those things out. I really don't know what I was going to say about verse 7 and 8, but that's okay. Miss Monica's got it. Thank you. That point about asking your brother and sister is what I was going to make the point of. When you've sought the Lord, when you've looked in his word, go to a brother or sister who's maturing you. Guys, we have plenty of those. Listen, if you're the mature brother or sister in this place, or maybe you're listening at home or, or in your car or wherever you're listening, if you're the mature brother and sister, it's not your place to go down and tear everybody up and to rip them to shreds and to tell them all the things that they're doing wrong. There's a time and a place for that. There is a definite need for accountability. But if you're the mature brother or sister, it's a good idea that you go to the weaker brother or sister and you encourage their faith, that you love on them, that you build them up, that you help them. Because if you'll be honest and admit it, you were in that place once too, where somebody poured into your life and gave you direction, helped you find purpose. Everyone needs that. I need it. I'm 40 years old now, and I need older men and women to continue to give me wisdom and advice and to pour into me, and and I I need to seek it better too. Sometimes we, uh, we need to humble ourselves to be able to ask for it as well. When you go to verses 9 through 11, you see he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He's saying humble people are exalted. Remember the kingdom of God? It says that the last shall be first, and the rich... Let him exalt in his humiliation, because the rich person, like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In no way, shape, or form is he saying it's bad to be rich. What he is saying is that if your riches are the object of your faith, and that's the purpose of your life is to make more, you're going to wither away. You've never, ever seen I've done a lot of funerals, and I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul attached to the back end of it. You don't take this stuff with you when you die. The things that you leave behind are spiritual in nature, and when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. Build up treasures now where moth and rust do not destroy, where a thief cannot break in and steal. He's saying that the poor and the rich offer examples of how we respond to life with wisdom. The humble brother is the one who doesn't have much. And this person is to boast in his exaltation because God's given him even more. Even when you don't have physical riches, you have spiritual abundance. He says in verse 9, to glory in the fact that God is making him like Christ through his struggle. But the rich man should boast in his humiliation. In other words, James reminds the rich that nothing material he has will last. It'll fade away like the grass and the flowers. There's more to life than stuff. 
Finally, verse 12, the last of this this morning. He says, blessed. You know, when you read that word blessed in the scriptures, it's a word that means happy. It's a word that means uh, uh, put, having God put his hand upon you and give to you. But it also makes us extremely happy as well. Blessed or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know, guys, this verse is talking about kingdom victory as a result of passing, passing God's testing. It's one thing to say you know the answer. It's the completely other thing to write the right answer on the test in school. You could tell the teacher if she asks a question, I know the answer, I know the answer, and that will get their attention. But if you don't know the answer, you're wrong. And so sometimes a test is given in our lives to see if we really believe what we're saying. Uh, I, I've titled this series, Walking the Talk, because a lot of us are good at talking the talk of being Christians, of being God's servants, of being humble and, and rich in mercy and blessing. But a lot of us are poor at walking the walk. We talk a good talk, but we walk a poor walk. And the purpose that James is trying to develop in us is to walk a good talk. And, and literally that means that if you say you believe it, you live it out. If you say that it matters to you, you spend the time investment on it. If you say that people are important, you show them they're important by the priority you place on their life. Everyone is looking for a blessing. Everyone wants to succeed. Everyone's desiring to be better. But when we talk about blessings, we need to clearly define them from God's perspective and not our own. It's not about more junk. It's not about more stuff that we can rent more storage buildings and fill it up with. A true blessing is a God-given capacity to experience, to enjoy, and to extend his goodness in your life. I'll say that one more time. A true blessing, a blessing from God, a real spiritual blessing is a God-given capacity. He, he's, he's laying the foundation for you, not only to experience his goodness and to be happy about it, but to enjoy it and then to extend it and give it to other people. There are so many examples of the positive results of being tested. Psalm 66 uh, compares our faith as it's being refined like silver. 1 Peter 1.6 says that our faith is of greater worth than gold. And that's why we suffer grief and all kinds of trials. In testing our faith, God is causing us to grow into strong disciples who truly live by faith and not by sight. When we experience life storms, we should be like that tree that digs its roots ever deeper for a greater grip in the earth. You know, for the next seven or eight days, we're supposed to have rain every single day. You know what's going to happen when that rain falls down? It's going to saturate the ground. And anything that has shallow roots, any tree that has any bulk about it at all, whose roots are shallow and have never been tested, when that saturation happens and any wind happens at all, that tree is going to fall over. You may have it happen in your yard. But the tree with the deep roots, no matter the saturation of the ground, no matter the presence of the storm, when it's dug in, anything can come at it, and it will survive, and it will stand. We must dig our roots more deeply into God's word and cling to his promises so we can weather any storm. It's comforting to know that God will never allow us to be tested beyond what we are able to handle by his power. Don't misquote that or lose the last end of that. God will often give you more than you can handle on your own. Don't let anybody tell you that lie. Satan likes to whisper it. God won't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. He's done it. He'll do it again. But he won't give you any more than you can handle by his power, by his ability. His grace is sufficient for you. 
Regardless of whether God's blessings include external components, whether we get rich or famous or or well-known, His blessings are intended to bring about internal changes so that our lives display His kingdom and rule. Trials and tests open the door to God's blessings that no other key will. No other experience will, and we don't like it. But my goodness, guys, how much stronger are you because of what you've been through? How much more of a testimony do you have because of what God has already done in your life, and yet you're still breathing and living, and how glorious you can give as a witness for the Lord. We receive trials from the Lord with joy. We pray for wisdom, and we grow in Christ-likeness. The next time you're going through a trial, or if you're experiencing one today, I'll tell you this. Rather than grumbling and complaining and saying, what's wrong with you, God? Why don't you give up on this? Why don't you deliver me? Why don't you, why don't you ask God, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Who are you trying to make me in the middle of this? Because I promise you, he has your best intention in mind. You're his child. You're an image bearer. You're the glory of God on this earth. You're his plan A to carry the gospel out and tell the good news of Jesus. He doesn't want you to falter. He doesn't want you to fail. He wants you to succeed. And in order for you to be strong enough to do it, he's going to put you through some things that make you very strong and powerful. I'd like you guys to pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today. Lord, I, I, I realize that a lot was covered in 12 verses. The background and history of James himself and who he was, James the Just, a man who lived a life of integrity and who really just put it out there for people. He wasn't interested in uh, if people disliked him or liked him. He just wanted to share the truth of God's word. And Lord, I I pray that as we look at the rich and the poor alike, God, that for those of us who are maybe um, humbled before you today, God, that we would boast in the exaltation that we have that we are spiritually rich, that we wouldn't play favorites, that we wouldn't discriminate, that we wouldn't hold charge against other people, that we wouldn't look at ourselves as better because we have Jesus, but that we would look at ourselves as uh, necessary to go out and share that good news with other people. Lord, I pray that we would remember that if we will stand fast and go through the test and go through the trial, that what awaits us on the other side is a crown of life. Oh, God, the life that we get to enjoy with you forever and ever casting those crowns at your feet and being uh, made whole and holy just as you are holy and seeing you face to face. God, I pray that you'll take the words of James, these real applicable words, and they wouldn't just be something that we listen to, but, Lord, that we'd apply to our lives, that we wouldn't just be hearers, but we'd be doers as well. Lord, that you would radically alter and transform us as individual Christians and as a body as we apply this word to our lives. Now bless us, Lord God, as as we respond to you in our vehicles or on our couches or wherever we may be today, Lord God. As we finish this service and worship, Lord, we pray that your impact and your impression, that your Holy Spirit would be working within us. And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.